Hello and welcome back to the Guns on Pegs podcast. As I mentioned in the previous episode, uh, this is another on-location episode, and this time I've decided to let Chris come with me. Uh, Chris, how does it feel to be recording in person somewhere? Yeah, it's lovely to be recording in person. It's also nice to be invited to one of these, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I felt I had to make it up to you, and we're, pretty, we're somewhere pretty special, but we'll come on to that in a minute. Yeah, this is epic, this one, yeah. in terms of location. So, so since the last episode, what have you been doing? Working, George. Have you been working at all? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I've had my head down hard. Like yeah, you... well, we, we've had a lot going on, but I, in between that, I've had a very nice week salmon fishing in Scotland. And you did rather well, didn't you? We did okay. I mean, the conditions were tough. Um, I think we finished the week on 13 fish for the team, seven rods. I had one, um, which I'm pretty pleased with. We worked pretty hard for them. We were fishing till midnight most nights but there's going to be a lot of people listening to this who've been fishing this year who would have blanked oh, and not like worse than blanked. 13 was the biggest week on the beat this year so far but as we were driving home the heavens opened i mean you've never seen rain like it and they had a lot of water the last few weeks last couple of weeks so i think they've had a few fish okay but I mean, to have had the biggest week when you go, oh, we were pushing okay. so hard. Like we got to within one, and we're like, "Come on, guys!" Literally, no one's allowed to go to bed until we've leveled the scores. <laughs> um, so yeah, we worked hard for it, and it was a lot of fun. We drank too much, we ate too much, drank a lot of whiskey and a lot of wine, and it was um, highly enjoyable. And I came back to work for a rest, basically. <laughs> and it's been far from it. <laughs> Quite well. Yeah. So come on, tell well, people. Well, so well, by the time this goes out. Um, people would have seen what we're up to with Scribehound, which is really exciting. It's revolutionary. There's a big change going on. Um, and yeah, so have, go on to Scribehound.com. Have a look. Let us know what you think. But I won't go into it in too much detail, but we're really trying to change the way that sort of publishing works in this countryside sector and really building it around the writers and the readers, giving mega value. Like it, It's cool. Like The concept behind the scenes is mega, so I'm really excited about it. But I think we should focus on today. Um, so I think in order to explain where we are, perhaps you should introduce our guest. Well, are we, maybe we're the guest, I'm not sure. This is a good question, we'll come on to that. Uh, so our guest today uh, has had an interesting journey into the gun trade. Uh, he was wine director at Tesco, uh, followed by chief executive at the very famous Berry Brothers and Rudd. Uh, so a real passion of mine in there to get to this point. And then he became chairman and CEO of the world famous James Purdy and Sons in December 19. So that's quite a long time ago now. Um, a huge warm welcome to Dan Jago. Hello, Chris. Hello, George. Dan, it's fantastic to be here. Thank you for having us here. Yeah, Not at so all. We're well, your guests, I think, is actually. I think that's probably the right way around. Um, <laughs> I still feel like I'm a guest here anyway. Um, but uh, welcome to our special place. Well, it is a very special place. Just for, for the listener's benefit, perhaps you could tell them a little bit about the room that we're in, first of all. Um, I suspect there aren't many who are in the shooting world or connected to the shooting world or in love with the shooting world who don't know a little bit about where we are. Um, we're in the long room um, at Audley House, uh, 57 to 58 South Audley Street in Mayfair, um, at a very famous junction of Mount Street and South Audley Street, um, built in 1887 by James Purdy the Younger, the man who's looking down at me uh, with a fine moustache, a well-fitting three-piece tweed suit, um, and a nice um, n hammerless gun. Not to mention the extremely fine monocle. 
Oh, yeah, not to mention, yeah, exactly, like I said, don't mention the extremely fine monocle. Um, <laughs> and uh, this room was, has been legendarily part of the Purdy history uh, since the very beginning and still is. So what is the significance of the long room itself then? Well, the long room originally was very much the back office. It's where the Purdy's sat and they would have sat at this table uh, or a shorter version of it at the time as their office. And then in the middle of the room where we're sitting, where the table now stands, would have been a hole a uh, light well, as they might have called it then, which looked down onto the room below. The room below is now our gun store and wood store, um, but it would have been the factory. So when he first opened here, they would have had storage of wood around it, and below were the factory workers actually making the guns. And uh, presumably instructions were shouted down, or the occasional, <laughs> Work bucket, faster. The occasional bucket, of, <laughs> bucket of something was thrown over the top to say, move, go faster. But it's not a wood store like you and I might have at home? No, not, not that Not sort. for setting no. fire to stuff. No. <laughs> um, and we are surrounded by examples of the Purdy craftsman's artistry, aren't we? Um, as well as paintings of some various, various severe-looking gentlemen as well. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect they probably were quite severe. I mean, over the fireplace is the original James Purdy, um, the founder. Um, James Purdy the Younger on the big painting, the famous painting on the wall, uh, at the um, northerly end. And then we've got his son, Athol. We then go into uh, Jim and Tom, who are the brothers on that side. Uh, and then uh, the interregnum owners, um, the Beaumont family, Richard Beaumont over my right shoulder. And over my left shoulder, uh, we've got Richard Purdy. Um, Richard Purdy was the sixth in the generations of Purdy's to be chairman of the company, and his daughter, Annika, I'm delighted to say, is on the board of Purdy, which was, um, I think, I, I pride myself in a bit of a coup in getting her to join the business uh, soon after I joined. So we've kept it going seven generations. That's great. And it, what's quite fun is you can see all the, the changing fashions from what all the guys in the paintings are wearing. I think that's a lot of fun. It's a very Victorian moustache. Yes, and the transition from high collar and cravat to, to uh, what we better know as tie. Um, not that you lot know what a tie is, but anyway. <laughs> We're a modern thrusting tech business, don't you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a room. This is, this is a good place to have it. And we've got a couple of bits out here, uh, which we're definitely going to come on to in a bit, but this is, this, is, this is where it's at. Yeah, but I think it's important that we keep things moving along. Um, so I am going, well, this is, again, it's a bit of a different one. Um, how are we going to do this? Well, this is, this is the way it should be, right? We turn up to a podcast <laughs> yeah. and, and then we and sort then of we have, say, Dan, what's that we're drinking? Correct. <laughs> yeah. So perhaps so let's start with what Chris has got because he hadn't been able to hold back and he started already. <laughs> uh, so our guest today uh, has been incredibly generous to us both. Uh, and I have, I think he knows my taste. He must do. Uh, so he has very kindly bought me uh, yeah, just to emphasise the point, there's a bottle of wine sitting on the table, which I thought, oh, there'll be three glasses, we'll have a glass of wine. No, no, that's just for me. So very, very kind of you, Dan. Uh, this is a bottle of Chateau Gruyère de la Rose, which, uh, 2009, Saint-Julien. Dan, do you want to tell us a little bit more about this? Um, it, it, I had a bottle last week and thought it was great, and I think I know a little bit, having listened to probably 50 of the 58 podcasts. Um, uh, what's your preferences when it all comes down to the wire is? You can't get this in a supermarket, and it's not lager. Um, but, but apart from that, um, it's a really nice, it's, it's only just really starting to drink. It's a grand wine. Saint-Julien is a particularly um, beautiful in-between style in Bordeaux. 
um, and 09 was such an approachable vintage. It's going to taste like that for the next 30 years, which is one of the great things about it. Well, it's a real treat. I mean, this is not the sort of stuff I drink at home like you do on a sort of standard sort of Tuesday evening. But uh... It was a Saturday, <laughs> but that's beside the point. <laughs> uh, no, obviously really lovely. And so I have been a little bit more restrained, and I haven't even opened the box yet, let alone the bottle. But um, on the outside of the box, it says, The Last Drop Distillers Limited, and then it says Tom's Blend Number 1. So while I open the box, why don't you uh, give us a little backstory? So... Uh... My dad was called Tom, Tom Jago. Um, and you'll see now you've got the bottle out. There's a little, I can't remember what they're called, those sort of cutouts. The silhouette. Silhouette of, of dad. Um, he's, Wait, that's your dad? That's my dad. He spent oh, wow. his entire life in the drinks industry uh, and invented some pretty atrocious things like Piat d'Or and Baileys and various <laughs> things. And then when he was 80, he set up with a friend this thing called The Last Drop Distillers where he went round distilleries trying to find half casks of beautiful things that were left. And they started with a 50-year-old uh, from Isla. And um, when he got on a bit, they realized that actually these, the last drop distiller whiskies sell at between three and 5,000 quid a bottle. Um, when they realized actually they couldn't afford to be pouring that at their events, they went and created a blend, which dad created and put together and it's an 18-year-old blend of uh, whiskies from Scotland, including Isla and Speyside and um, other, other wonderful things, Highland whiskies. And it, Dad always said that this was the best whiskey he'd ever made or put together or been involved in. And he invented Johnny Walker Blue and the Classic Malts Collection and things like that as well. Busy man. Um, anyway, and it's not for sale, George. You can't buy it. It was only made in a limited number of bottles. And uh, I was given a few. Uh, by my sister, who runs this business now. It's owned by a large American distillery business now. But um, we, we had a few bottles of it, and I know how much you like whiskey. And I don't like whiskey, which is a strange thing. I've tried to teach myself. I'll come back to that. But um, I'm not a great fan of whiskey, but even I like that. And hopefully I'll open it and have a little taste and say, it's not a bad drop. I'm, I'm, I mean, it's not great for a podcast, but I'm actually speechless. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've not really heard of it before, but I mean... It, you, you would never have come across it before. Let me put it this way, I'm opening it right not now. Not one of those things. Um, it's a very, very fine drop of um, whiskey. And, uh, you know, Dad literally, and it says it, I think, on the back label somewhere, um, every evening at six o'clock, he'd pour himself a half and half whiskey and water. J&B used to be his, his standard go-to. To reflect then, on his day, which then is he the moved. correct use of whiskey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and every night, he'd sit down, oh, there's a good noise, have a little contemplation moment. Um, half and half. I like half and half, half but and half. often people get quite funny about that. Well, uh, I'd, I'd prefer to have just a, just a drop of water, as you know, but I know a lot of people who drink half and half, and I think the correct way to drink whiskey is however you like it. Correct. Yeah. So your dad was an incredibly talented chap. He, he, was a, he was a pretty unusual person. I mean, he was quite creative, um, and he hated working for offices or other people. Right. Um, he, he went for a job as a photographer, but got the interview in the building wrong, ended up being in advertising, um, <laughs> uh, which is very like Dad. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the rest is history, as they say. So, yeah, he invented all sorts of weird things. Johnny Walker Blue Label, I really like that stuff. And, again, people get quite funny about that, too. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's really good. George's now got his nose. I've got my nose in it. Um, he, it smells he, he's, fantastic. He's admiring. Um, if you turn around and say it's filthy, I, I may not forgive you. Oh, no, that is seriously good. 
Good. That is seriously good, Chris. I might let you have some. This, this is seriously good too. So we're both very happy. <laughs> Dan, I mean, I can't, I'm genuinely, it's very incredibly generous of you. Um, and you've set a new bar for all podcast guests. Um, bar well, most bit, of them bar are, being most the of them are sitting in their kitchens with a cup of tea, George. Really. Well, yes. So now we have to ask you, what's that you're drinking? Well, um, when I was at Berry's, I remember being interviewed by a newspaper and they said, um, what would your final drink be? You know, if you could have, what's your favorite wine? What's your final drink? Um, and I thought about it quite hard. And I came to the conclusion without a doubt that the first inch of a really good pint of bitter is the best drink in the world, bar none. And as a result of which, um, uh, we've just been across the road to the Audley Public House, um, the newly opened Audley, wonderful pub, uh, with a restaurant above. Refurbed. Um, yeah, refurbed, but under new ownership. Um, and I've got a pint of um, Sandbrook's Wandle. A Ooh, lovely. Beer, Lon- Very nice London beer. London beer. Nice, oh, okay. nice afternoon session beer, um, which I seem to have drunk about half of already. We've only just started, so um, Named- might have to send out for emergency refreshments. <laughs> Named for the only chalk stream in London. So it's got a good field sports heritage to it as well. You'd be pushed to find any chalk in the Wandle, I reckon. <laughs> there's a, there's <laughs> very, was. very good fishing in Once in upon Wandle. a time. Yeah, I know a few people I, who I think you're it. absolutely right about this first sip of a pint uh, of bitter. A Friday evening. I had that last Friday, actually, down in Devon. And it was just one of those moments, you know, like, that's what Friday evenings are all about. Like, it, that first sip, standing at the bar. It's, there's a sense of sort of purpose and reward about it all at the same time. Yeah, you feel you've earned it, don't yeah, you? Yeah, and it's not complicated. And, the first, you know, it's like... Apparently, you're supposed to drink Guinness down to the G as your first your first mouthful. Well, that's just an Instagram thing. Oh, it's, <laughs> my daughter it's very told me that. So. It's very good marketing, though. It's very good marketing because you drunk about half of it in one go. So, Dan, as you know, um, what we'd like to do next is to turn to our listeners for some correspondence. And the first segment we always do is called Whose Bird Is It Anyway? It's when we ask our listeners to send us their shooting quandaries and queries and dilemmas. Uh, and we do our level best to help them out. This one come, it's, This one's a long one, so strap in. Make sure your glass is full. Um, it comes from somebody I've decided to call Epicurus, who writes, I attended a shoot in January 2019 in the wonderful Angus Glens. I was asked by a friend to step in at the last minute as a member of the planned team had dropped out. We met the team in the hotel on the evening before the first day and generally got to know one another over dinner before heading to bed after a steady night. We all met in the morning and had the usual debrief from the headkeeper, and off we went. As I, I know this shoot, and I've been going there for years, albeit under different management, but this was my first trip back in about four years, and whilst I knew roughly what to expect, you simply can't help but be blown away by the beauty of the place. It was a crisp January day with plenty of frost and, and a little snow on the tops, so you can imagine the scenery, I'm sure. While it was late in the season, the birds weren't exactly plentiful. There were more than enough on the ground for a great three days. The area is known for challenging birds, and despite lower volumes than early season, they put on a good show, especially off the Glen side. As this was my first time with a team of new guns, I was being particularly selective, picking out all but the highest and generally trying to make a good impression. Not to brag, but my shooting was on top four. (laughs) And despite being picky in my selections, it was soon noted that I'd shot very well and had one or two to my peg, an offhand comment, but it stuck. Well, we arrived back at the hotel at the end of the day for drinks with the keeper and to hear the tally, and we'd only managed just over 100 for a considerable number of shots. Not to worry, said the keeper, tomorrow we go for 200, and after today's performance, have a steady night, won't you? 
That evening's chat was gen naturally about the shooting, with one or two well-aimed jibes about who'd let the side down by shooting poorly, but all in good jest between a bunch of good friends. Another steady night was had by most, as we obviously had a job to do the next day. Day two was much, of the, much the same, all new drives, great birds, and same performance. I'd once again shot rather well and above my pegs allocation, though not through greed, you understand, just through lucky peg placement and tidy shooting. But this may not have helped with the situation to come. After failing to make the bag again on day two, dinner was a different affair with many of the lads thinking that drowning their sorrows having come such a long way to shoot below their average on such quality birds was much needed, and so regardless of what the shooting would be like the day after, a big night was due. I was heading to bed when I was encouraged back to the bar to a cheer and comments of a good hangover to slow you down is what you need, and as the new boy and feeling I needed to reinforce new friendships, I obliged. So after a bleary-eyed breakfast and a pot of strong coffee, we headed to the last day and the crux of my dilemma. Just before the third drive, the keeper came to me and said, I'm going to change your peg position on this drive and stick you at the back of this wood, away from the rest of the line. We've had a lot of birds go back this way this season and they're flying off our estate and we can't dog them back in. So if anything comes, shoot it. I've seen you shoot, so fill your boots. Well, as we were behind the bag on, uh, over the three days, I did as I was bid. The shackles were off, last day, under orders, no need to hold back, and as long as it was a good sporting bird, tally-ho. Well, as soon as I hit 25, I stopped counting. All of the birds were shots that anyone would have been pleased to raise a gun to, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that the picker-up, the keeper had stationed behind me on the boundary to the neighbouring estate, came off that drive laden. He was weighed down by pheasants, buckling at the knees. He had game carriers, a game bag, and each of his four Labradors had one in the mouth apiece. Alas, he had to walk past the guns to get to the game cart, as we were all stood around having lunch and drinks. He was bright red from effort, the keeper beaming at me, myself equally as red at the looks on the faces of my fellow guns, as one exclaimed with his pork pie frozen before his maw, I've never seen anyone have a private picker-up with a rucksack before. The laughter soon died out. So, gents, there you have it. Three days great shooting, for me at least. Rarely shot as well since, and I parted ways with a group of men whose company I thoroughly enjoyed, sure that our paths would cross again in the future. They have not, nor have I been asked back to that team since, and my friend, who invited me along, hasn't passed comment. So was I in the wrong? Am I the dreaded, greedy gun? What was I to do? Goodness. First of all, can I just say three days... Back to back to back. Yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of cartridges. It's, yeah. It's the way to do it. If you're going to go to Scotland. They weren't huge days. Like, they were fairly good. 150 is a decent day, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, very good, yeah. Uh, but if you're going to go to Scotland, I mean, if you can do three days, do it. But, yeah, yeah as you say, it's a small market. Difficult one, isn't it? Um, because we shouldn't be embarrassed about being on form and shooting well. Um, it's sort of what we practice and claim to practice, yet, you know, the average gun has got an extraordinary sense of modesty, most of them, and the occasional one who doesn't is the one who appears on this podcast. Um, <laughs> what, you mean uh, the, my co-host? <laughs> him, for instance. I've seen Chris shoot. It's, um, you know, he, he's very good at being modest and saying how bad a shot he is, and he's one of the best shots I know, so... Um, oh, God. Uh, I don't, I don't think there's anything, you know, if they were a bunch of dogs who had three left feet and two left eyes, then that's just unfortunate. Yeah, I think, so that's the interesting point here, because we don't, he's sort of suggesting that they were actually, you know, so he's, he had a lucky draw, 
on quite a few occasions, which also happens, doesn't it? It does. Um, and I think if you've been shooting for a long time, you know that. It's how you deal with it, I yeah. think, is the key. I mean, it sounds to me like he was being pretty modest. I mean, we've only got his word for it, obviously. but um, Yeah, this is he, a one-sided story. He was being pretty <laughs> modest to begin with. And then, you know, halfway through the last day, the keepers come to him and said, look, you're the only one who can shoot. Yeah, <laughs> so that is a bit of reinforcement. Yeah. yeah. And but, I'm sure Chris has been in this situation many times. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting a bit close to the bag. Can <laughs> you start shooting a bit more, please? Get some more shots off. I mean, what? That's, that's the ticket, isn't it? I mean, the, the only thing is, is like, is it, uh, it is a bit unfair on the rest of the team who are pr- presumably going to be en- end up paying for a lot of the birds that this chap has shot. He's been put in an awkward... Exactly, that's going to be the challenge. But if they've, if they've paid for a... 150 bird day let's say um, and they're only getting 100 each day for three days then they've gone home not quite having got their money's worth as they might see it um, if everybody if everybody has enjoyed themselves ultimately then it's fine or, or that's a very the, good point it, it, true and that is the most important point but the, i think maybe they're thinking well we didn't get a good sort of spread of shooting we've not really enjoyed ourselves except we have hit the bag because this chap has basically hit the bag for us so they can feel slightly. I, it, this is a wild. This is. I mean, it's, it's wild in a sense of as wild as it can be. Uh, you know, you can't control these things. But, but I, I do also think that there is an onus on people booking days anywhere to be confident that it's within their skill set. Right? He said that it's known for showing decent birds, which is presumably understatement for well we hear this pretty a lot. decent yeah, birds. we hear this a lot <laughs> absolutely and they're just not the rest of the team just weren't up to scratch so they slightly got themselves to blame i think if they've booked something that they're that's that's too serious for them yeah i think if you're a shoot host owner manager whatever in this position and you've got a team of guns that aren't like you know the best and you know that they're going to fall short first drive right guys what do you want We've got more of the same, and forget forget everything that you've booked in terms of bag or the rest of it. You're I'll, here for a I'll great wind time. them down a bit for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's the key because then you're managing expectations right from the start. I, this is we're going to end up in the argument about the buying on numbers stuff. But well, I was going to say that's exactly the thing. Is there's too much pressure about hitting the bag, but that's that's something that keepers feel because they feel that they've sold it on a particular basis. But with this one-sided story, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he has been put in an awkward position by the keeper yeah. uh he's done what the keepers asked him to do the keeper really should have just said to the rest of the guns i've put him out there and this is what i've asked him to do but uh, i don't know that's not really a keeper's job on most shoots but also the the um the uh, self-awareness of some guns might suggest well what if he's been put there why aren't i and the reason is because the keeper's seen the other seven guns. Um, he's in a and lo- it's late he's in a he's in a lose lose situation here, yeah, isn't yeah. he? And he he can't win. If he'd stood there and said, "It's immodest for me to hit everything I aim at because I'm a good shot, therefore I'll just not shoot or miss some, and moderate my shooting," then nobody benefits. So it's a it is a lose lose. Yeah. Have you ever been in one of these situations? I imagine you're frequently the top shot on the team. Uh, in keeping with the conversation, I think very rarely am I the top shot on the team. <laughs> I'm normally the one um, watching other people. It is one of the problems. You don't get to watch people shooting enough and shooting. I remember what... my dad being in a situation like this where the wind, you know when there's a strong wind and, it, and, and, you, and you get pegged out and you think, we really shouldn't be pegged out here. We need to shift this right round because the wind's going in a slightly odd, no, not a southwesterly. Um, my dad was peg nine, right on the end of the line, and sure enough, every sodding bird just went, 
straight out the other end and he was on form and they were just dropping and I was like, when are you going to just stop? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you can't, can you? Because no. they're all good sporting birds. No one would want you to. And if you're, if you're the keeper or, or even the shoot host and the bloke at number nine who's got every bird going over him basically puts his gun down halfway through the drive, you're going to go, what the hell's going on? You look, well, you then end up, you can't, as you say, you can't win. You can pretend to miss. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have once been on a shoot where, um, a little bit like your story, um, uh, Epicurus's situation, where the keeper did come up uh, at the beginning of the last drive and say, uh, we still have plenty available, sir, um, against what you ordered. Um, not to me, but to the entire line, so let loose, at which point, um, clearly, a number of the guns in the line had been holding back quite carefully <laughs> right. during the course of the day uh, because they really did let loose and... Um, it was, well, most of the day was in the last bag, last drive. Yeah, interesting. So we need to provide some advice to Epicurus. Uh, and he's, he's been left in this situation where he hasn't heard back from his mate, which is something I hadn't, I, I'd miss, missed that till the mm. end a little bit. He, he hasn't heard back from his mate, which is a concern. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is potentially, but maybe his mate's just been busy or maybe he, I don't know, we need to, yeah. Uh, and then obviously not been invited back on this day. But then if this was the first time knowing this group, maybe that's not that unusual. Maybe there is a space and they change it up a bit. I don't know. And he was a last minute shoe in as well. Yeah. Um, so there, what you don't expect to hear back, you, do you? You certainly wouldn't expect to be invited back no. again if mm. you were standing in for somebody who no. presumably the following year was available. So what can he do apart from nothing? Well, I think he gives his mate a call and says, I suggest you listen to episode 58 <laughs> of the Guns on Pegs podcast. Yeah, exactly. Because... <laughs> um, see if anything sounds familiar. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was clearly shooting with a purdy if he was that accurate. Therefore, there's some, uh, no concerns about... Um, we we shall get on to this. <laughs> um, I, I think that um, it's, one of, it's a social situation rather than necessarily a sporting one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's one of those situations where he shouldn't be embarrassed about having done what he went to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. That's it. Cool. Yeah, very good. Hope that helps him. I'm just not asking him to shoot with me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, so I'm pleased to say that we've had another Forgotten Drive submission. And this one, I think, is kind of the er text for Forgotten Drives. I think it's a really nice one. It comes from Jonathan in Cambridgeshire, and he says, Long-time listener, first-time correspondent. Whilst catching up on episodes sitting on the beach looking out at the Aegean Sea... I heard you talking about Fidel's email regarding lost drives and immediately began to reminisce. I was lucky enough to grow up on my family's small farm in the Cambridgeshire Fens, and ever since I can remember, the farm shoot days were the highlight of the year, bringing the whole family and much of the village together for a day out in the countryside. In those days, we only released a few hundred birds to top up the wild population. Unfortunately, today, the population of wild birds in the area is a fraction of what it was 25 years ago, uh, due to, I suspect, the ever-increasing predator populations and loss of habitat. Small fields with a ditch or hedge surrounding them have been merged together to create one large, easy-to-farm prairie. We do our best with predator control and have increased permanent habitat areas with pollen and nectar mixes and rewilding some areas, but I digress. Being a fen farm, as you can imagine, the land is pretty flat. In fact, very flat. However, at this time, we had a field that rose up a full 15 metres above sea level, along two hedge lines running at right angles to each other. Up to and along the top of the field, a maze cover was drilled. This was the hill drive. (laughs) To many people, this bump in the landscape wouldn't strike you as particularly special, but when you see a wild fen hen pheasant 
launch itself vertically while looking for any gap in the line before flying to the next county, you can see how special this drive was. The smiles from the guns and beaters said it all, and as a kid, the excitement of this drive was unforgettable. Unfortunately, about 15 years ago, some of the farm was sold and this drive was lost. Now in my late 30s, running the family shoot with my uncle, I dream of bringing this drive back to the shoot so that, men, so that my friends can see one of the drives that gave me my passion for shooting. I like that. I like it a lot. I like it very much because it sounds incredibly familiar. When yeah. I first started shooting, my godfather was a Lincolnshire farmer just outside uh, right. Holbeach Hearn. And um, the first time I went out with a shotgun was a 16-bore of his and um, a Webley and Scott. And we were, we were shooting in a situation exactly like that. And there was a slight undulation in the yeah. field. And that was considered <laughs> the high point. Um, yeah. But I can still picture those birds coming off the sugar beet and on a wet day where the beat's up to your knees and your wellies are still wet already. Um, and it was absolutely wonderful. It's also where I got learnt my first lesson about shooting when I got sent home at lunchtime or half just before lunch. Ooh, oh, hold dear. on. Too, you much, can't stop too much low gin. Enthusiasm. <laughs> too, much, too much enthusiasm with the gun in the shoulder. So I swung and just kept going. Oh, dear. Uh, um, and this was quite early on, like my second ever day out with a gun. Right. And it wasn't, at no point was it dangerous. But um, my godfather was a very fine man, um, and he decided the best way to teach me about gun safety was to send me back, walk back to the house. Goodness um, and me. And it was a walk of shame, and I, I reckon I'm probably the safest gun I know now. Goodness, that's a proper yeah. clip around the ear, isn't no, it? It is, absolutely. He was good at that. <laughs> I'm going to use this for my parenting later. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so uh, having grown up in Suffolk, I can absolutely understand what he's talking about with the small undulation that causes... And, and if you've shot in Norfolk and you're obviously talking about Lincolnshire, hen pheasants, or actually hen pheasants generally, fen pheasants... You stand on their tails and just... They do do something a bit different, don't they? They do. I've often wondered whether they were a different species because I know that people like um, Duncan at Braxted has some sort of vertically launched pheasant that comes from America and uh, who are called something like sort of dynamic tornadoes, and they go straight up. <laughs> and then they, when they get to about 60 feet, they then turn horizontally and carry on. Well, I, I, the, 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 I, the received wisdom, what I had always heard is that it's, it's essentially because there is no cover, right? It's just a big flat landscape, not a lot of trees, not a lot of hedges. You know, fields are demarcated by ditches and dikes rather than hedges and that sort of thing. So yeah. when they get up, they just think there's nowhere to go that's safe to aim for, so I'd better just go up and then hope for the best and think of a plan once I get up there. Whether he can bring it back to quite what it was. Yeah, I'd definitely be on the phone to the bloke who bought the land and say, now, come on, you come and shoot with us and we'll shoot that drive, wouldn't you? With, without a doubt. I mean, and in fact, I'll tell you what, I'll come around and do it. I'll look <laughs> after it. I'll plant it. <laughs> I'll put the cover crop in. Um, you know, we don't want much. We only want 50 feet. Yeah, just so um, you can reminisce. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. But that's what it's all about. I, I love it. I really, really like that story. Um, yeah. It's exactly what Forgotten Drives is supposed to be about for me. So yeah. more of the same, please. Good. Well, it's, it's getting there. You've, you've persevered. I've and really I'm pleased been pushing it. You have. <laughs> so and I, and I, I always thought Forgotten Drive meant I can't remember where I shot last week. Um, <laughs> not not because, that you had too much night before. Now I've realised what Forgotten Drives actually are. <laughs> not that you had too much night before and you no, just forgot nothing, nothing that drive. That at all. No. Never. Right, Chris. Unpopular opinions. So this one comes from someone that George has called Murdo, uh, who writes, Relating to a recent unpopular opinion about guns not marking birds which I listened to on the metro in Athens for some reason. We've had a couple of uh, Greek... Hellenic theme here, isn't yes. it? Thank you, that's much better. Uh, I do see the point, and I admit it's something I struggle with sometimes. However, 
I would argue a worse trend is starting to happen on some shoots, perhaps usually the larger, more commercial ones. And it is this. Your birds are all picked up before the drive is finished and the pickers up make no effort to show you what they've picked and where. I absolutely hate this. If the bird is a runner, then fair enough. Dispatch the dog or try and dispatch humanely where possible. But otherwise, I feel a gun should get to pick up birds that have landed close to him and then talk to the pickers up on the others. The pickers up letting the gun know how many they have picked. In a few cases, as a gun, you go looking for birds that have already been picked during the drive. Also, I do like to handle most of what I've shot so that I can tell, tell it is hopefully a clean kill. This sort of makes me feel at peace and then I think, I think it's an important thing to keep doing so. If I never get to pick up anything, if I ever shoot, then it feels really hollow to me. Not an issue on most farm or smaller shoots, but seems to be increasing. Mini rant over what do you think? It's a very interesting one. And sort of, we've touched on these sort of topics before. Dan, what, what do you reckon? Um, you've certainly clipped the corners of every aspect of that conversation at some stage. Um, I see exactly what he's describing, and you see it quite often, particularly on commercial, efficient, well-run shoots, where they want to get you from the drive onto the next one. My problem is, it's less about being able to pick up my own birds and, and think a little bit about where they are. It's that it encourages a sense of uh, a lack of ownership. Um, mm. And I quite often now see a team of guns where as soon as they've heard the horn, they sleeve their gun and then they go and stand and chat to each other. And unless they've got a dog, they will be not looking at where the birds are. And I personally still always, always, always go and pick up birds, regardless whether they're mine or not. Uh, you're absolutely That's right. That's a very key and, point, And yeah. uh, I think what's happening... I feel, feel like, I mean, we must have, we've had 58 episodes, we must have touched on some of this before, but hey-ho, here goes. What I think's happening is there's a bit of a cultural change. Like, pickers up te picker up teams, pickers up, te wait, correct me on that in a minute, picker up teams are becoming more and more efficient, more professional. They're super, super proud of what they do, like more so than maybe they were 20 years ago. And it's like sort of don't tread on our patch, you know, we're doing our job, we're here to do this bit now. So you kind of feel that you're not wanted to go and tell them where your marked birds were and, and, and as a gun I'm talking. Uh, and I think that that, therefore, you've sort of had this, this shift that's occurred where the gun doesn't feel like they can go and talk to the picker up in the way they, that they mm. sh should have been able to in the past. And, and suddenly we got to the point where the gun just walks off the drive because, well, of course it's taken care of. It's super yes. professional. Correct. And in, therein lies, suddenly the optics is are awful. And the only two times I've seen uh, what might be regarded as raised tempers on a shoot have been one to do with somebody who was you know, fundamentally dangerous um, and the other one was between somebody with a dog and a picker-upper who sort of preferred to get his dog in there first and whereby the, the, the gun has to go and have a stern word at the end of the drive and say, could you please leave anything within 50 yards of me alone because I'd like my dog to work them. Yeah, um, yeah I agree. But I, I, I think you're right. It's about encouraged to be professional. I mean, you, I think you had an episode about the idea that um, there should be no noise from the beaters. And then you had another episode where it said there should be as much noise as possible from the beaters. <laughs> so so yes. it will divide opinion, come what may. But um, I think that as part of the briefing, it would help an awful lot if the host turns around and says, this is how we're going to play the picking up. Has anybody got a problem with that? Would you like to pick your own birds? Almost as a conversation point. And half the guns will turn around and say, well, I don't need to be asked. I always go and pick my birds up. But it's just a little reminder. Just a little yeah, nudge. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 
and I, I think that you're right about ownership as well, because we've all been shooting a long time. We all have the understanding that you need to make sure that everything's picked up. Particularly if you grow up shooting on a you know a small syndicate or a farm shoot or whatever, there might only be four dogs on the day, uh, three of which four? will be completely useless, and one will be a terrier. So if you're not making a pretty good mark and making a real effort to make sure that the birds are picked, you know that could be, you know, five or six birds not in the bag at the end of the day. Um, so, and you, so you want to make sure that the bird that you shot is picked, and so you then are making a real yeah. effort. It comes back to the briefing. That absolutely does. But at the same time, like if you turn up, I've found myself in this situation for the first time recently with a, with a dog, and it's like it's like having your child with you. Like I'm so excited about her being able to pick up a bird. Like it, it means more than shooting to me. Like it's, this is for her type thing. You get into this weird mindset, and um, and 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 actually, if the picker up is there for their day, and suddenly they can't do what they're there to do, you've got an an obvious conflict. Uh, as long as whoever's running the shoot lets both the picker-uppers and the guns know what's going to happen, then if there is, you know, ultimately it's the gun's day. Yeah, it's uh, the gun's day. And, that's and, the important and other people point. are there. Somebody's paying for it and the guns are there to have a great day. And the picker-uppers will work in accordance with that compliance. But your point about the farm shoot, you know, my, uh, I do more shooting in my local syndicate, which, you know, if we're lucky, we get 60 or 80 birds. We only shoot four days a year. And there's probably one picker-upper um, Poor Nigel. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I and, think I pricked uh, one. It's so just... we all have to go and find our own birds yeah. afterwards. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a big part of the day, and we don't move on to the next drive um, until we've picked the birds that we know we've shot. I hate leaving a bird behind. It's just a. It, it just doesn't feel right. Well, so I think this is another. This is another popular opinion, isn't it? He's absolutely right. <sighs> yeah, it's just another nuanced one, isn't it? Yeah, he is right. You sound very disappointed that you're right. No, it's, <laughs> it's just frustrating. There isn't clear and simple answers. But yeah, the briefing is more vital than anyone realizes and no one listens, so start this. But the, but the default position is you should be, you know, within 50 yards of your peg, you should be picking them. Yeah. Or at least being able to, you know, knowing whether you need to go and look for them. Uh, That's I, the other it's bit. It's courtesy for yeah. me as much as anything else. And so much of shooting is about tradition and courtesy courtesy to the birds, courtesy to the pickers-uppers, and particularly to the keeper. Yeah, I agree. Um, and therefore, picking up a bird is a courtesy. They probably don't want you to pick the birds up in some shoots, yeah. but mm. it's still a courtesy. But being... And then you say, where would you like me to leave these? Can I take these to the game card? Should I leave them by my pay? Yeah. Did you, you know? get that one? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Communication. Uh, did, you, did you get that one that I know I missed? But I'm still <laughs> going to make you go and have a look for it. I really hope. Because it was way over the back it, of the trees there when I got it. It definitely flicked a wingtip. <laughs> yeah. Such a classic, isn't it? They're it standing definitely the, dipped. The picker up standing there looking at you, nodding, going, shut up. <laughs> But there is one, just very quickly, there is one uh, shoot I have been to, um, which made me feel extremely uncomfortable. That They were high birds, and it was fairly evident that they weren't going back far enough to pick up the birds that had probably been right. pricked and shot and couldn't have fallen within range because they were a long way away. And I wasn't hitting them because I wasn't good enough to hit them, but I saw people definitely hit birds, but they weren't coming down because they were in full flight. And I know that... You know, it's one of those situations where the bag will be what you wanted the bag to be, regardless of how many are actually in the bag. Oh, God, no. No, 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 no. Don't open that can Haven't of Haven't been back and said I didn't like it either. Really? Not, not to, just to my host. Yeah, but it's, it's always the shoot owner, manager, host, whoever it, the person is that runs that shoot, that is always there. It tells you everything. 
Right, so another popular opinion, unanimous popular opinion. Right, so Epicurus, Jonathan and Murdo, and now of course you, Dan, are all members of the Most Noble Order of the Garters and will shortly be in receipt of your very own sets of the highly exclusive Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters. If you two have a shooting quandary or query or confession that you'd like us and our guests to help you with, or an unpopular opinion, or if you'd like to tell us about a forgotten drive, and you'd like a set of garters, drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. We're so out of practice doing live episodes that we haven't brought down his garters. I was going to say, I managed to bring you alcohol. You didn't bring me a pair of garters. <laughs> well, it's because they're all with our new garter distribution centre. Ah, of course. They are. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, rivaling <laughs> Amazon for its scale. Honestly, exactly. <laughs> our garter distribution centre husband and wife duo are incredible oh great it literally makes prime look like it doesn't know what it's doing can i pick mine up at the game fair next week you absolutely, oh, you absolutely can, can. Oh, we've already had an email a, about the game, how many... the game fair which happened last week oh sorry yeah the game fair that happened last week that was really good <laughs> is going to will have happened yes um but speaking of the most highly desirable items in shooting dan we have recently done the game shooting census and i've got a quiz for you i love Ooh. a quiz Pub quiz, this is basically, you're sitting here with a pint and this is a question. We asked people the following question. If money was no object, who would you get to build you a gun? So my question is, can you name the top five? And there's a bonus point if you can get them in the right order. <laughs> was, that this, was that this year's? This yeah. year. So if money was no yeah, object. I, I entered it, I think, 270 times last year. So um, <laughs> um, I, think, I think that um, uh, the well-known and... Um, very fine James Purdy came first. I think that um, Boss came second. I think that Holland and Holland came third. I think that Wesley Richards probably came fourth or third, depending on the order. And the fifth one is more difficult. I'd probably say Parazzi. Very interesting. It's not... I mean, you've started you've got off got some well. of it right. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, if, if money was no object, who would you get to build your gun? George, reveal the answers. Right, so, in first place, James Purdy and Sons. Hooray! What percentage of people? Uh, call it 17 and a half. Okay. Second place, Holland and Holland. How hmm. close? Call it 16 and a half. Okay. Third place, Beretta. Interesting. Their SO range is lovely, though, isn't it? They are, but they're not... You know, I mean, it's they're different. not that well known as a as a bespoke gun maker, rather than a no. gun you want. I mean, that's true. I've got a pair of Berettas, some people just love. Great, but there's there's a there's a sort of, it's sort of a bit like you know Oasis or Blur. There's some people who are just very married to Beretta. Yeah. So then fourth place Boss. Yeah. Fifth place Longthorn. Ooh, wowzers! That's quite interesting. That says that they have marketed themselves extremely effectively. It done. So, I mean, they've done a lot right to do that. Yeah. Got to be just about the product. Interesting. Um, Wesley not in there. No. No, not in the top five. Um, and I can't remember where they were in the, in the there order. Was a, there was a survey similar to this on um, whatever they're called on Facebook. There's a best gun makers only um, group on Facebook with about mm. three and a half thousand members. Um, and they did a poll last year. Um, and... Uh, I think Boss were either first or second, but then that's gun makers. Um, this is this is the people that matter. The correct. average, yeah, absolutely, These average are. shooting person. And and it's lovely that Purdy are at the top, and it's uh, I think it says a lot about the durability of our reputation and craftsmanship. But also, 
I think it's a nice mix in there. And, I, you know, very good thing. There's, um, what is it, four of the five are uh, British gun makers? Yeah. yeah, they are. Yeah, so Purdy and Holland's a little bit out for the rest, yeah. which I think would be expected. Beretta, Boss, Longthorn, fairly close? Uh, yeah, 10, 9, 9. So hold on. Boss and Longthorn are equally desirable. I'm not saying a word. Longthorn guns are nice, but no, no. money's no object. Uh, well, no, I oh, think, but, oh, hang on. Money, it says if money was no some, object. But, but a lot of people don't think like that, Chris. No, no, but that's for what some the question people, says. For some people, <laughs> money no object is a Beretta SO or a Longthorn. For other people, money no object is genuinely money no you object. You know the Porsche car door closing yeah, scenario? The, 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 the nice thunk. Yes, right? You'll know because you've done it a lot with your guns, but the boss, same sort of thing, right? They close very nicely. Um, our but, guns, but there's o- no our guns way, open very nicely. There's no way the that a Longthorn... Like, uh, Longthorn guns are lovely, and I, they have marketed them very well, and I, I like what they've done, the way they position the range. But, they, but they're, not, they're not that boss level... If money was not no, paid. they're not, um, and I think that you know that the, the, what's often referred to as the holy trinity of best London gun makers um, is deserved. I think I would say I'm biased, obviously, but I think that um, I'm delighted to see new gun makers coming along and gaining traction and being prepared to put money into making. Uh, their brand more popular. I mean, what we're seeing with Galleon looks quite interesting as well. Yeah. Um, and Longthorn and hopefully others as well. I mm. mean, Rigby, more famous for rifles, but do a good job down in Bassey. I mean, it's a... Yeah. It, it's, it, it's good for everyone. It does give hope that, though. You know, if you're thinking of starting a British gunmaker and the guys at Galleon, this, that's, oh, that, that, if you've got, that should if you, be on your wall. Yeah, almost. absolutely. Like, yeah. You can get there. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I've got a, the final quiz question for you then. Oh, Okay. According a quiz to the, of two questions. A quiz of two questions. Right, okay. According to the 2023 game shooting census, what do you think is the most popular name for a Labrador? Um, well, if it's anything like our shoot captain at our syndicate's name for his Labrador, it's called Would You Bloody Come Here Hobby? <laughs> um, so I doubt it's actually the same as that. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the most popular name for a gun dog is Purdy. It's not the most popular name for a gun dog, but it is the most popular name for a Labrador. Oh, there you are. It's good, isn't what it? What percentage of Two gun dogs percent. are Labradors? <laughs> Two, percent. Two percent of Labradors. No, no, what are... percentage of gun dogs are Labradors, though? Oh, uh, about half. Okay. Two percent of Labradors are called Purdy, according 2%. to my data. Two percent of half is better than, you know, three percent of ten percent, isn't it? So that, yeah, by yeah, definition. But that doesn't mean no Cocker Spaniels are called, <laughs> called Purdy. No, I'm biased. I love Cocker Spaniels. <laughs> um, that's co- quite so cool, th- isn't it? So the is, most common name for a Labrador. I mean, by the time this goes out, my article will have gone out already. But I've had this bee in my bonnet for probably two years, that, that there are certain names that go with certain breeds and that there are certain human names that people use for Careful dogs. Careful what you say here now, George. You're, you're, you're walking into a so slippery path. I, so I, I decided I was going to put a question in. My theory was that, you know, all, all Spaniels are called Teal. All Labradors are called Purdy or Merlot. Uh, <laughs> or something like that. And how, how wrong were you? Not a single Merlot what? in the whole data set. Not one. It's like a few and thousand also, people. Not also, a single more Labradors called Teal than Spaniels. But quite a lot of dogs. And that blew you away. That genuinely blew my mind. <laughs> I think we need to almost start a, a campaign to, um, to come up with names, suitable names. I mean, I think calling your dog Merlot might get away with it. Calling your dog 
Comtesse Pichon de la Lande. He's probably <laughs> less popular, isn't he? Um, just as an idea. I mean, you could yeah. call it, that wine you're drinking, Chris, you could call it um, Guard La Rose, but nobody can pronounce it. So. You could have a dog called Julien. Think you could shout just be called, Julia, just be called Jules, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, my, yeah, my, my brother had a, um, a spaniel years ago and um, he called it Neo. This was not a working dog, I used to point out. And it was called Neo after the Matrix. And the postman every morning would walk up and pat it on the and say, Morning, Neil. Um, <laughs> and after a year, they gave up calling it Neo because it was called Neil by that stage. <laughs> but Dan, I think you're missing a trick not building on your marketing success of Labradors called Purdy. And I think you need to extend this out to anyone that wants to name their Labrador Purdy. Gets then, a free gun. And then, and then gets like, I don't know, like discount in the shop. Give them, give them a hip flask. Call you Because how many times are they going to shout Purdy on the shooting field? Purdy, get back here. How about a collar that says Purdy on it? Yes, if you yes, call your dog Purdy. The, if you call the, your dog Purdy. Go for it. What if you don't call your dog Purdy? And you still you say you call it Purdy. Can no, we no, test it? To, no, no, because you have to bring kennel the club, kennel club kennel registration club thingy, form. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, but kennel club and, and real, uh, they're, they're different, aren't they? We have to bring each dog yeah, has no, to come here to the long run. And you do yeah, a yeah. test. And, and it, you do a test. Send it over there. Exactly. It, does it come back when you say Purdy? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of, I reckon there's a lot of actual Purdies that would fail that test. But that's fine. That's another reason not to have the collar. Actually, it's a reason to need the collar. Also, if you're a dog called Purdy and spent five minutes in this building, I think you'd get very, very confused after a bit. Why is everybody talking to me? This is your marketing sorted, by the way. Okay, thanks, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) The invoice is in the post. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, we're dicking around, but there's a serious point, right, which is um, Purdy, more so than any other gun brand, has sort of, has this reputation as being the one. Or the pair. The pair. The pair. Or the pair, yeah, Yeah, sorry, the pair. Um, what, What is it? Why? It's 215 years of constant improvement and innovation. Um, And somebody asked me this question the other day and said, why should I spend X, which is a six-figure for some, let's say, on a pair of Purdy's when I can spend Y, which is a five-figure sum, four-figure sum, on a pair of something else? Mm. Um, And I said, because it's 210 years of soul and... In our factory, there are still the second, third, fourth generation of gun makers who have taught their apprentices, and we have seven apprentices at the factory, and it's in Hammersmith, about three miles away, and they teach their apprentices, and their apprentices grow up, and then they teach their apprentices. And there's this sense of continuity, which means that it's still the same idea behind the gun that we started with 200 years ago. And all we've done over the 200 years is just gently improve it. Um, And the Beasley action which is the side-by-side action, um, is still exactly the same action. The improvements have been tiny modifications in terms of efficiency, but the principle is still the same. It's still definitively the self-opener side-by-side with a very strong mainspring that opens the gun powerfully, and then you struggle to close it. Um, uh, And our over-and-under action is the Woodward action, and that's it. Do you think people buy for any of those sorts of reasons, though? I'm, 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 I'm intrigued. I genuinely don't know. I think there is a complete mix. And if you surveyed every one of our customers, everyone would have a different answer as to why they bought it. Yes, there are those for whom the pleasure of owning a Purdy is about what's on the outside, like having a Porsche parked in the driveway. Yeah. Um, it's what it says about you yeah. uh, is definitely important as part of the process. But the detail which our customers go into in creating a bespoke gun and the level of detail they're able to go into it indicates to me 
that they know an awful lot about what goes on inside the gun rather than what goes on outside. And genuinely, most people don't know and don't care what goes on inside a gun. And we have customers who really care and really know. And I think it's something like 75 options available um, just off the list, straight list, in terms of choosing a gun. And customers know the stuff they're looking for. Yes. I, I think you probably don't drop the kind of money that you have to drop on a Purdy without at least vaguely knowing what it is that you're doing. Well, uh, yeah, you see, because my initial reaction would be it's all relative. Like, if you've got that sort of money, then, you know, fine, it's like buying another gun. Yeah, <laughs> as in, like, I can just do this. But I think, actually, what you've said makes me think don't forget this is still their hobby so why not get super excited about reading up on it get well you know, and i go don't know about you like, like if if, they, if i'm interested in a thing like let's take fishing for example yeah you're interested and in I'm, that. In, I'm interested in it and yeah. i'm interested in maybe having another fishing rod <laughs> i'm gonna do a lot of reading like why is this one this one because versus the reading is the action. enjoyable bit the research is part of the process and part of the enjoyment of it yeah so i think you probably don't come in and drop that kind of money without at least reading a few bits and pieces do you yeah i think that's absolutely spot I'm on sure i mean uh, uh, do. Uh, you get all sorts we had a customer who rang up one day and said i would like a pair of 20 more side by sides and i want them to be exactly like the same engraving as that one on the website and that was it and then came in got measured went through the process went down to shooting school um tried out various guns to make sure the balance and size and things like this and um but that's what he wanted. And mm. I got the impression that you know, and he is, and I've spoken to him a few times since he's taken delivery of the guns, um, they are possibly the most beautiful pair I think I've seen delivered in my time here. Um, and he's happy as Larry with them. Um, but for him, I think the pleasure is uh, the reward, partly. It was clearly a moment in life that he was celebrating for yeah. himself. Um, but it's also the fact that he knows he's bought the best. Um, and that's quite a nice feeling. You know, it's, it's a little bit like avoiding that thing where you buy something and then you spend the next week looking in shop windows to see if it was cheaper elsewhere. Oh, buyer's I, remorse as well, yeah. I, think I don't suppose I, you get a lot of buyer's remorse I think there's something, the about, uh, there's something about Purdy which means that people um, uh, don't do that. So, so tell me, um, in the factory, um, I mean, you guys are notoriously sort of handmade, right? And that's your big differentiator versus some of the sort of machine-made guys from Europe, let's say. Um, is that still the case and is that changing? Um, we are still very much a bespoke gun maker. And Bespoke's different to handmade? Yeah, bespoke is different. They are still handmade guns. Okay. But like everyone, we now start by using the best technology available to ensure that the parts are the right parts yeah. and are efficiently made. I think it's a really nice balance of the fact that we make our own parts. So 100% of what we sell yeah. in our guns are made in London. Um, so we put them all together. We send them out to be the barrels to be bored on some, some of our guns because it's a better process. There's somebody more efficient at doing it. Um, but almost all of the gun is made by us in the factory. And the guys like the fact that what they receive is a piece that resembles what they've got to finish rather than a piece of steel that's two foot by two foot and they've got a chisel and a hammer and they've got to take it back down. And I think what it's led to is both innovation and consistency. Consistency and reliability, after all, are the things that you want in a gun. Mm -hmm. You know, you want yeah. it to feel the same every time you pick it up, and when you pull the trigger, you want it to go bang. Because the detractors to handmade would say, well, machine-made can get more accurate than a, than a person, and obviously I can understand that, but 
But but your point earlier about soul. Yes, exactly. It, it's, and I think genuinely, I think we have the best of both worlds. I think that we get the accuracy of a machine-made part that comes to a craftsman. But remember, there are still seven stages of gun making in our factory, and the finisher still has to assemble all 138 parts and make sure they all fit together. And they're all made out of either steel or wood. And that's basically your lot. Um, and it's different grades of the bits that go together that make the gun feel right. And the sensitivity, the fine-tuning, when you look at the guys who are making the barrels, the judgment for the correct barrel-making and choking and the lapping that's gone into it is to look at it. They look at it, they hold it up to the sky and they look at it. It is not a measurement with a micrometer. It's looking at it by eye. And the feel of a gun, when a gun maker opens it, he can tell you whether that gun's a good gun or not a good gun. And if it's not right, they'll go back and do it again. So, so that's, that's where it's staying, that's where it's at. Absolutely right. I think we'll always look for areas in which we can improve the quality of what we sell, but nothing will ever take away from the fact that we've got 45 craftsmen and women uh, in the factory who are putting those guns together and making the guns from the bits they're provided with. It's really interesting. I've not thought about it for a while. Um, but yeah, the sales process, like the, what you're buying into, the charm, the how it's made, everything else, is such a crucial part. Like, yes, of course, it can be made by a machine, and you could, it maybe could be slightly more straight or whatever that term but, is. Well, so while you, were, while you were speaking, I was thinking about your previous existence as, as chairman of Berry Brothers. And I thought, well, actually, it's not all that different. Because if the desired effect is bang or, and or drunk then you can go to the supermarket and you can buy a bottle of Blanc or you can go down your local gun shop and buy, <laughs> it's a very good you, know, uh, yeah. you know, 800 quid, whatever it is, and the desired effect will be achieved. But if you want something that's going to give you memories and a sense of soul, then you want something a bit more... Yeah, and I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think the difference between wine is a consumable and uh, Purdy's are durables and permanent. You know, mm. We make a gun for generations, not for the person we're making it for. And it's one of the lovely things is that we still regularly get guns coming back in here saying, you know, this was my great-great-grandfather's. It's 1898, and it's still working absolutely splendidly. Yeah. Um, you know, when did you last clean it? 1982. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, it might be good if it comes back into the factory and we give it a quick pull it apart and have a look. But... Um, the guys at the factory absolutely love getting really well-used old guns back in and having the chance to just take them apart, have a look, and admire the work of those who went before. Really? Yeah. That's and cool. remember, every part inside a Purdy um, will be stamped with the initials of the guy who made it so that they can go back and look at it and say... Wait, oh, every part? Yeah, within it, each part, each little tumbler, wow, I the springs, that. the hammers, they'll be, they'll be stamped inside. So with they the can go knock on his door and be like, oh, mate, so <laughs> what were you doing <laughs> this day? If you go back, I think these days we try and discourage every part being knocked about with a hammer and a, um, and a, and a stamp, but um, there'll be parts in the guns that are all stamped to show you who put it all together, who finished it, That's who the amazing. stocker was who the engraver was, all of those parts. That's very, very cool. Um, speaking of craftsmanship and wowzers, what, yeah, have, you so, got, so what have you got in I've front of you? I've sat here this long with this, this thing sitting beside me, and I actually just looked, glanced to my right and reminded myself, this is unbelievable. Okay, George, you're going to have to describe this. You're a better wordsmith than I am. Okay, right. So um, this, is, I, this might be the most famous gun well, in, the, in this room. I, yeah, it must be. I don't... But not necessarily to the world. 
And I think this is why this is so interesting. I don't think enough people know about this. Okay, so so it's called, and I think I'm right in saying this, it's called the Moth Gun. It, its nickname is the Moth Gun. Its nickname is the Moth Gun. Um, and it is a side-by-side hammer gun that is from muzzle to butt, maybe seven inches long? Yeah, six or seven inches. Six or seven inches long? Scaled up, it would probably be a 30 or 32-inch barrel, something like that. And it is a fully functional shotgun with cartridges that work. And we've seen the cartridges as well. They are about the length of your... They're the size of a grain of rice. Yes. Um, And it was made for... Now, I'm definitely going to get this wrong, so... So, a pair were made for the king, um... And now I'm going to have to remember which king, but George let's say George the, V. Yes, I think right, George that sounds V. Um, right. yeah. So a pair were made for George V to celebrate his coronation, and those are at Sandringham in the Royal Collection. Um, soon thereafter, for Tom Purdy, uh, an individual gun was made, and that was this one. Um, and it is a completely functioning, bar in wood, double-barreled hammer gun with top lever, um, it works. I let Chris open and close it earlier just to demonstrate that the top lever, and it really feels quite nice. It closes properly. It goes click when you close it. I'm staining Dan's tie. I'm picking this mini shotgun. Up. I'm not wearing it. I think it's important to say I'm not wearing it before he <laughs> does that. <laughs> I, that oh, won't come it through. Will, <laughs> it will come through. I heard that over here. That'll... This has got a, that closed beautifully, going back to what we were saying a minute ago. And they've managed to do that on this miniature thing, the size of the length of your hand. And, and, and the amazing, so I can't, to, just to try and describe it, like imagine like a doll's house shotgun. That's yeah. the best way I, th- I can think of describing beautiful. it. Beautiful. That would fit Action Man quite nicely, wouldn't it? It would, it would fit absolutely perfectly. I'm not sure that if there is a... Or um, Barbie, if, given if, the Barbie <coughs> movies out now. Barbie, it would fit Barbie quite well. In this day and age, George, Barbie is equally welcome to shoot with the side yeah, by yeah. side. Yes, but I mean, Barbie fact, would like to come on the podcast. The fact is... Uh, <laughs> the fact is that Margot will be on the podcast. You, now you're just dreaming, mate, aren't you? It's fully engraved by Harry Kell. Um, it worked... Uh, the reason it was called the Moth Gun was because, in fact, not because of Tom Purdy, but because George V famously used to shoot at moths in the candlelight. He'd sit in the evening and light a candle on the table, and when the moths came in, uh, he would shoot at them with um, the little cartridges that came with it. It's amazing. Honestly, jokes, isn't it? But, but he, so it's got the little, um, uh, the little rubber pad on the end of the stock, yeah. which is a miniature version of his actual gun. Yeah, it's his 12-bores, yeah, it so it's completely shrunk. And, and it's got its full leather flat case with it, which has got all the parts in it, like the oiling pot and... So I've got this, this book with the original entries into the diary it's sitting next to me in front of this microphone and this iPad. And I have this case, which is half the size of the keyboard on my iPad for this gun to... I mean, this is jokes, right? This is absolutely ridiculous. I've got a question for you. I, this, sure, this could be the most valuable gun in the world. Uh, it's certainly, if you, if you weighed it and worked out and said, what does it weigh? Two ounces or something. Um, and then you scaled it up. <laughs> There's no debate. But I suspect we often suggest to customers it's certainly the most valuable gun in this room. Um, and whether that makes it... One You've of got them, some right? crazy collectors out there. If you said, and you, this is not going to happen, I'm assuming, but if you said this is up for sale, mm. um, 
the bids that would come in would be ridiculous. Yeah, which is why I think it's better to describe it as priceless. Yeah, it, it has to be. Yeah. It yeah. literally is. Well, it is to us as well. Of course. I so mean, this can cannot I just say, go Chris, anywhere. Do not break it. Well, I've um, touched and, it and twice, <laughs> and I'm in a very small group of people who've been allowed to exactly. do that. And we've got, um, we've got one cartridge left, apparently, that, one live cartridge left. And, that would be a podcast. And, and whilst we could possibly find somebody, you know, we could, we could get um, Hull to try and make us more cartridges, or maybe not, um, but we wouldn't want to use them on the gun because I suspect that you'd be worried about the fragility of the yes. gun. the whole thing would yeah. break. Um, yeah. And it's not proof for steel shot either. <laughs> did did you say already there, there were, so there are a trio of these? Uh, there was a pair, and then this was another one made yeah. separately. So it's not one of a trio, it is a, there's okay. a pair and a single. Okay, fine. And the pair is, is up in uh, Sandringham. Wowzers. So I, the, I think the cool thing about this room and, and that as well, like if you're in the neighbourhood and you're interested, a lot of the time you can just pitch up here and have yeah. a wander about yep. and, and look uh, at these guns. And there's a lovely collection of memorabilia paintings, portraits, um, photographs of um, the great and the good and probably the less good on the wall. Um, uh, there's things like this room was used by Eisenhower's team for the planning of the D-Day landings mm. uh, during the Second World War. Um, and we keep a small collection of guns, both new and heritage. Um, we don't actually ever have very many new guns in stock. It's not sort of what we do. Yeah. Uh, but we've always got a few um, and a, a good collection of some really fine examples of um, second-hand guns, heritage guns, uh, plus some amazing memorabilia. Um, we're very lucky to have it. But it's just, you know, it, the long room is an amazing place, but it's one part of this extraordinary thing. We've got this factory that makes guns. We've got the shooting school down in Berkshire, which is Purdy at the Royal Berkshire. Uh, we've got the shop here, which sells basically everything, um, some wonderful clothes and all the other parts and parcels of it. And we love seeing customers. You know, everyone is welcome to pop in. And even if you've no intention of buying anything more than a dog collar or a baseball cap, we'd still love to see you. Um, and along the wall behind you, George, you probably haven't even turned around, are the ledgers, um, which them. extend from 1818. Uh, we started in 1814, but the first ledger is A, 1818. So I think when they learnt to write stuff down, um, and it goes through to the present day. So we've got the, the record of every gun we've ever made, which is in the 30,000s now. So if you've got great-granddad's Purdy sitting in a gun cabinet or hanging on the wall or whatever, and you want to know who built it... No, we'll charge you for it. We sell histories of the guns. So if you yeah, ring up... Right if you ring, if you <laughs> ring up, If you ring up the gun room manager, Dr. Nick Carlo, um, I think the only man with a PhD in guns that I know of... Uh, He's an amazing guy. Uh, and he looks after the gun room here and is our historian as well. Um, and Nick will dig out a huge amount of information on your gun for you. We've got Nick to thank for having this Well, yeah, this and I was going to say, like, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation... Like, if you want to learn an awful lot more about guns than you'd ever anticipated knowing... <laughs> Nick is your man. <laughs> Brilliant. So, yeah, come and meet Nick. Come over. Um, talking of that history and the great-grandfather stuff, so who is it that's buying Purdy's these days? Um, over half our customers are from America. Um, so we are very lucky in that uh, Purdy continues to be um, a hugely well-sought-after. That was subtle. Um, <laughs> hugely well-sought-after name in America. Um, and it ranges from those who have a number of Purdy's uh, through to first-time buyers, but over half our customers are American, um, and then the rest of the world would be split equally between the UK, Scandinavia, um, Southern Europe, and the rest of the world. So it's a really nice mix, but it, what it's not anymore is the archetypical aristocrat 
um, who is, uh, owns a large stately home somewhere in Northumberland, uh, that's not our customer these days. Many of them have got our guns, but because we make guns that last forever and ever, um, they tend not to come back and buy another one. Um, so we it's a have a lot in the of business people, model, that isn't it? A lot yeah. of people who are new. I know it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I'd rather make guns that last forever than guns that are disposable. Um, <laughs> yes. And, and we, but we we have a lot of people who come to us for the first time, um, uh, who have made money and want to celebrate and want to. You know, they might have been shooting with something else for a long time, but this is their way of saying, uh, I, success has now come to me. Um, and it, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think if you were to ask, you know, your average UK game shop what their image of the average US game shop would be, the gun they're using is probably not a Purdy. They're probably thinking a semi-auto or a pump action, something like that. But actually... Um, there is a sort of subsection of the US hunting community who are seriously into shotguns and seriously into specifically UK built shotguns. And and the craftsmanship that goes with it and the history yeah. that goes with it. And, you know, a, a very decent percentage, I won't give the exact number, but a very decent percentage of the guns that we're currently making in the moment for America are 28 balls and 410s. So small calibers are the thing that they really love as Not well. And that's good for the sort of walked up upland exactly. hunting up, where you don't want to be trail, lugging around a great sort of big stuff. thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Not a steel friendly thing. Yeah. But you know, it's, 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 <laughs> we're very lucky that our customers are um, both uh, excited at the moment to purchase but also loyal um, to the brand. And it's, it's interesting the number who come back and buy again. Uh, repeat customers is quite a significant number. So is there a cultural issue going on here in terms of this appetite from the US customer to simply be very happy purchasing a new gun? Like, or, or, you know, what, is there anything in the UK about this oh, new Purdy owner type thing? I, it feels like there's a, there's a bit of a difference between the mindset of the two. Um, not really. I think the mindset still comes back to excellence and reward. You know, I mean, ultimately, it all boils down. I would say that, wouldn't I? But there is a, uh, there is a sense that if you're buying the very best, ultimately, it's for similar reasons. I think that um, there is more of a sense of, of re singular reward from those who are in the UK or in other parts of Europe buying a Purdy than there is in America where... I think reward comes in many forms, but we are often dealing with um, very comfortable customers um, who, who are adding it to a collection of other wonderful things that they own. It's interesting because we, 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 we were walking in here and we were talking about so, yeah, the types of shooting people and we were thinking about how it, in the UK it's sort of become weirdly cool to... Uh, to wear something that is like the fifth generation or use something that, you know, and you kind of think, where's that come from? Yeah. Oh, it's, there is definitely a cultural thing in the UK to be seen to have been doing it for a long time, it, to not be new. You know, there's a reason that people might say, don't wear matching tweed, for example, because really you should be wearing a mishmash of things that you've inherited from a variety of grandparents and uncles and what have you. And having a lot of new stuff implies that you're new to the endeavour. Yes, and we, we often we published an edition of the Purdy Post uh, with a nice debate in it um, amongst ourselves about matching tweed versus unmatching tweed. And I know you've had that conversation as well. Uh, there's definitely that element of um, uh, old money has old things um, and new money has new things. Um, and the answer is there's a place for both. 
without a doubt. I also think that really, actually, a new and an old Purdy are actually quite hard to tell apart if the if the old one's been looked after. Yeah. You know, you what you're almost buying is a new old thing. Yes, well, I think particularly with um, uh, our side lock guns, I'm really lucky that instead of a company car, I get to borrow a pair of trigger plates, which is our mid-level, uh, and they're made for me and fitted to me. And I didn't shoot very well before, but I definitely shoot better now, and I'm not just saying that. A fitted gun that has the balance and the, the, the built-in confidence of a pair of guns that are for you is extraordinary. Well, I mean, we could talk about this for a really long time, and there's a lot of whiskey left in that bottle, so the temptation to keep doing so is <laughs> very strong. Cause it it's is, not, it's, it's, you know, it's, we, we haven't got onto many contentious issues, have we? Well, I don't think, it's not all about contentious issues. Sometimes it's just Have about, you got one you wanted to bring up? No. <laughs> I, I should have one, really, shouldn't I? I mean, I, I've, I've scribbled myself some notes earlier today, and, you know, um, what, what do I want to be on a bandwagon about? And the answer is not very much. Chris knows my particular bandwagon because he's heard me ha- saying it often enough about uh, unity in the, in the industry. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that one, yeah. But I think this, what's really interesting about this whole thing and sitting in this room and having this discussion is it really reminds you, like, well, for me, certainly, like when you sort of got into this, what it was all about, you're just joining something that's just got so much before it, so much like to it that it oh, is yeah. so enjoyable. I mean, tradition and heritage are such an enormous part of what we do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we try and be a bit flippant about it a lot of the time. It's partly what this podcast is about. It's exploding some of that sort of maybe stuffiness. But at the same time, it's impossible to come here and yeah. think, well, bollocks to that. Yeah, but, 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 but there's a real difference between stuffiness and the heritage thing, I think. Yeah. And I think that we must draw the line between those two because that's also the point we were just alluding to. Yeah, I, I hope we're not stuffy. And I no, don't God, no. I don't think you talk to anybody at Purdy who was stuffy, but we're incredibly proud of what we do. Um, we are absolutely committed to those people that came before us. And we bear the responsibility, not lightly at all. You know, in my job and the craftsman and everybody else in this business knows that they, you know, they stand on the shoulders of giants to use somebody else's expression. Um, and it's really important. And you have to look after it. You have to handle it with care. A little bit like that tiny weeny gun in front of you, Chris. Yeah, I'm not telling yeah, you don't again, touch don't it. I think, <laughs> I, I think judging by the level in that bottle of Guadalajara, I think it's probably best you leave the gun alone now. Yeah, we're, we're way through. So, Dan, the way that we finish off these pods, as you well know, uh, but for those that don't, is with our Desert Island shooting episode, uh, part of the pod even, uh, you have one last day. Where would it be? Who would you have with you? Time travel is no issue. Obviously, we've got the famous GOP, Guns on Pegs, private jet. It's got sort of chopper inbuilt. It's got time machines. It's got everything you want. Um, what are you going to do? You see, I... I I've thought so long and hard about this, and every answer I've come up with is either crass or crap. Um, <laughs> and and um, I feel that I'm quite late to the party in shooting proper shoots. You know, I started when I was 12 or 13, as I said, uh, with my godfather, and then went away into the Navy and, and stopped shooting probably for a 30-year period, and then um, eventually slowly got back into it, did more shooting at Berries, and then obviously now at Purdy a lot more. So I'm quite late to the, to the game of 
what really good shooting looks like. Which matters not one jot. It, it matters to me in terms of the ability to be presented with something incredibly exciting. Okay. So uh, I'm afraid that, and this, this sounds awful, but the idea of... And can I be sure I can only have one day? Because it seems a shame... Oh, no, you can have a weekend or a trip. A weekend or a trip. Okay. Um, you talked earlier about three days back to back in Scotland. Um, I want a pair of days in Northumberland in a hole in the ground on the grouse because I only really got to shoot grouse the first time about six or seven years ago. And I only really get one day a year. And I've once or twice been for two days back to back. And... The Poor you. More than most. <laughs> My heart bleeds. Everything, everything about the whole thing is amazing. And added to which, there's this thing at the end of the first day, if you're doing two days, you haven't driven that far, where you know when you go for supper or for a drink that you get to do it all again the next day. Yeah. There's something about being in a hole I in the ground. I agree with that. And it's, it's a combination of things. It's the sound of a grouse. It's yeah. that noise they make. It's the anticipation. It sounds like they're saying, get back. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I, for a time, I had the sound of a grouse as my ringtone on my phone because I just loved the noise so much. Um, it, it's the anticipation. You feel like you're going into combat. You're crouched down behind a line of heather on the front of a butt. You're waiting. You're looking. You can't quite hear them, and then suddenly you see them. Your heart races, the speed of the birds, and the competitiveness uh, of the whole thing, and then the eating, you know, because let it be said that grouse are delicious. Um, one of the best days I ever had was we did grouse in the morning and, and partridge in the afternoon. And the underkeeper was sent away with um, a few brace of grouse back to the pub so the chef could get them ready for us to eat that night. And that was just heaven. Um, and I'm, I, there's no one in particular I want to take with me. What I want to take is there's lots of people I'd like to take. There's people, who, people like I used to work with, John O'Erby, who are great shots. But I'd like to take seven or eight other guns who are great shots because presumably there's an unlimited amount of, uh, of things flying around in the air. Infinite. What a thought. Um, because I'm always at my best, because I'm quite competitive, I'm always at my best when I'm surrounded by people who are much better at stuff than I am. I have a massive inferiority complex about everything and imposter syndrome. And the idea of being surrounded by seven or eight people who really know so what like to the, do. So like the seven, uh, the seven best shots in England plus yeah, you. you know, and, and, and people who are also incredibly good fun. And uh, you know that it'll all be very understated, but when one of them comes up to you afterwards and says, nice shooting. Really well done. You know, you're, you're seven foot tall. <laughs> <laughs> but also it's a very good way to make sure you don't end up in a position like... Uh, Epicurus? Well, Epicurus. Yes, yes, exactly. Epicurus. Um, <laughs> but it, it is, I mean, I, I, I love... Every element of shooting, whether it's literally a 15-bird day with a mate walked up over the farmland right the way through to a, a grouse day. Um, but you know, in terms of sheer exhilaration and heart-pounding fun, there's nothing to match grouse. So your desert island shooting is sort of a 400-brace grouse day? Cool. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and I've been feeling... Few, really, pe few I, people would say no. No, but, but I've been feeling really, you know, almost embarrassed about the idea of saying that that's what I really want to do, but it's true. I mean, you get all sorts of lovely shooting. And, and I loved listening to Ian a couple of weeks ago um, about, you know, his unbelievably complicated days, but I don't fish, or rather I did fish for the first time ever in my life two weeks ago. Did you? I cast a fly ineffectively in anger and then a nymph slightly more effectively... 
Uh, I caught two fish. Um, and it's I, a slippery slope. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, that in well, yeah, I, haven't, I haven't caught the bug yet, and therefore I don't have this sort of um, the desire to go and shoot a stag and to catch a salmon at the same time as well, because I've never done it. No, fair. I'm, I'm, I'm all with you. I mean, it sounds like a mega day. And your point about back-to-back and in the evening after the first day is, you know, that where we started this pod about you having a sip of that beer on the Friday evening, that sip after your first day shooting, knowing you've got another, I think I turn into an actual child yeah, exactly. at that exact point. Actually, right. <laughs> you were going to say animal. <laughs> that too. Like, cannot contain my excitement. No, absolutely right. And... Uh, I'm always up way too early in the morning and, you know, uh, sitting there like a, a kid checking your kit and making sure that everything's right. And, uh, you know, and, I, and then I watch these people who basically turn up two minutes before we leave, leaving half their stuff behind and then shoot better than you do. So um, paranoia is fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I don't think there's many who'd turn down the invitation. Um, one last thing before we go, um, and I haven't asked you about this, but... Bearing in mind the huge number of listeners you have and the average profile of your listeners, can I make a little plug? I expect so. Can I make a little... I might cut it. You might cut it. (laughs) You can try. That's fine. Can I make a plug for men to get themselves checked for prostate cancer? What a good idea. Can't cut that. No. I think Um, it's a very good sign. I was diagnosed with it 10 years ago and had a massive operation, and I've still got it, and I'm still fighting it, but that's fine. It's one of those things. But I take part and support uh, Prostate Cancer UK, and uh, we went along to a session. They basically said the earlier you get checked, the simpler everything becomes and the easier it is. And I think about, you know, if your average listener, let's say, is over 40 and male... Um, then you are right bang in the situation where, despite the fact it's slightly embarrassing and you might feel a little uncomfortable about it, um, honestly, forget it. Go and get it checked because it's a hell of a lot easier and a lot nicer. Well, I, I fully endorse that message. I mean, we've had Ben Hughes on telling people to check their balls. Yeah, yep. I um, remember that one. Yeah, And now I think that is a very good message yeah, to level finish yeah, this podcast right. on. Yeah, no, thank you for saying that. Sorry for stealing your, your um, final thunder. You can cut no, it No, not at all. Cut I, it back I saw it. I've seen a thing that you can now put on the inside of the loo. It like clips on like an air freshener thing and you wee on it. And I'm, apparently... I'm not sure it works. Does it not? No. Okay, Because you. Did, right. got, no, I'm, I'm glad for putting Get it checked by a doctor. Exactly. Get checked by a doctor. Have a blood test. If the blood test indicates anything, you then get an MRI scan and that's dead easy. Um, and there are so many ways of them being absolutely sure before anything further happens. And, um, you know, trust me, it's a lot easier to have something that prevents it going any further than chopping it all out. Well, I think that is an excellent note upon which to end this podcast. It, I mean, Dan, thank you ever so much. It's been fabulous to be here. I, I love this room. I love being here. The whiskey is amazing. Um, and I can't thank you enough for that. It's been a fascinating chat. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Hugely generous of you. I could sit here all evening and just carry on drinking this, but probably get kicked out. It's been, lo- <laughs> been lovely to have you here, and I can see by the shadows at the door that um, somebody's waiting to throw us out. <laughs> <laughs> well, so all that remains is for us to say, as per usual, that there is a final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the very exclusive Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters by sending us your shooting dilemmas for us to resolve or by sending us your unpopular opinions or your forgotten drives. Just drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com and if we read it out in the next episode or any future episodes, we will send you some garters. We will be back in a couple of weeks' time. But until then, 
Thanks very much for listening and goodbye. The old man used to say the best part of hunting and fishing was the thinking about going and the talking about it after you got back.